touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we're just racing to go for this episode. Rearing to go, I think, is the phrase. Racing to the finish line. We're talking about uh, a company that has uh, played a pretty important role in automotive racing, the McLaren Group. Uh, They also play a really interesting role, as it turns out, in many other industries. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, you know, in order to have a vibrant company, uh, one must diversify. And... And diversify they have. They have, they have branched out quite a bit beyond just the, the, I, I hesitate to use the word humble beginnings because Formula One racing, as it turns out, is an incredibly expensive endeavor. Yes. But, uh, they, they've branched out from their very focused approach on racing in general into lots of different stuff. And we have to mention at the very top of this show that some of the stuff we're going to be talking about uh, is very, very specific to cars um, and very specific to automotive racing. Two things that, while Lauren and I are experts on... Oh, yes. Well, of course. There are other people in this office who, I hesitate to even admit it, but they are even bigger experts. Specifically, Scott Benjamin, who is a walking automotive encyclopedia. He very much is, and he and Ben... Uh, ben Ben Bolin, that is, do a terrific show called Car Stuff, which yep. we have mentioned. And uh, and Ben has, in fact, been on Tech Stuff a couple of times yep. alongside Jonathan. And uh, yeah, so if you are very interested in the really down and dirty specifics of Formula One racing or other forms of racing, then go check out their podcasts and videos at carstuffshow.com. Uh, you can find a whole wealth of information there because, yeah. Yeah, they, those those kids are crazy. It got to a point where I was getting a little confused about the different designations for vehicles, uh, which we will talk about a bit in this show. And I, I actually Scott sits next to me. Well, peek behind the curtain at how stuff works. He's literally on my right side. And I would just turn to him and I said, Scott, I don't understand what makes the difference between this kind of car and that kind of car. And he says, well, you know, Jonathan. That is what they're banking on. So, uh, <laughs> but they, they are very good at explaining what all the little intricacies are. So, McLaren Group, what is it? Well, actually, it's, it's kind of a, a big company that has a bunch of, uh, divisions that are all operating like independent companies, right? Yep. So it's a conglomerate. Uh, and it's innovative in lots of fields. Uh, these days, besides the race cars and even, uh, road cars, cars that, if you a private sector, yeah. if you happen to have a million dollars or yeah, so, a million to drop plus on a car. and change. Yep. Uh, they also do work in health, energy, entertainment and transportation. So I guess transportation technically would be if you have a million bucks and you're ready to drop it on a two door uh, former what, what what used to be a race car, <laughs> but has been modified to be a road car. Yeah. The, the reason that I was so eager to do an episode on this company is that I just find it so fascinating that a group of people who do really technical Formula One racing stuff also occasionally uh, make cartoons or food products. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that does definitely raise some eyebrows, right? Yeah. So we wanted to see what exactly this company was all about. And for those who are wondering what this has to do with tech, Formula One 
racing, really any kind of automotive racing where you have very specific parameters set for what your car can and cannot do, tends to really focus on very technical aspects, particularly Formula One. Uh, certainly. And also, as they have developed all of these technologies, they've started getting into other sectors of sensor and data crunching yeah. that are really fascinating. So, so let's go all the way back to the beginning. What is this? How did McLaren begin? Okay, so it is, in fact, named after a person. If you do not follow racing, you may not be familiar with Bruce McLaren, who was a New Zealander uh, who became very interested in automotive racing when he was just a kid. And uh, he became a competitive driver and impressed the racing world with his skill, uh, became the youngest driver to win a championship race in 1959, uh, which was the U.S. Grand Prix. And he won it at the age of 22. Uh, not too long after that, he decided that he wanted to form his own racing group. Yep. And that team would become the the, the tiny kernel, the, the little oyster pearl at the, at the center of what the McLaren group is today. Exactly. And so he competed primarily in Formula One racing which is a type of open-wheeled, single-seat automotive races. It tends to be more popular in Europe than in the United States. There are U.S. races as well, but uh, they usually include courses that go on public roads, which are closed for the duration of the race. Yes. You don't really want to have regular road traffic. No. No. But uh, it means that the cars have to be able to take those turns and be able to, to hug the road. They're, in fact, designed so that... Uh, you know how an airplane wing is designed so it generates lift? Mm-hmm. A Formula One race car is kind of the opposite way. It has a downward force applied from the from its design, so it, it's like, it makes it hug the road better. Uh, because when you're going 220 miles per hour, you kind of yeah. need a little bit of help. Imagine going down Peachtree at 220 miles per hour. I mean, I, that's... Sometimes I get up to like 45 and I feel <laughs> like I'm about to die. Yeah, so it really does require a special type of vehicle. He also raced in other sporting events like the 24-hour Le Mans, which is more of an... That's obviously an endurance race, not not a, uh, a speed race like... Uh, uh, Right. Like, like a Formula One. Mm-hmm. Uh, current rules state that you have to have three drivers and swap them out. Yeah. Over uh, the course of the race. A couple of people in the history of Le Mans have attempted to do the whole thing by themselves. Uh, uh, as in only one driver. But again, listen to car stuff if you want to hear more about long car races. Now, in 1963, Bruce McLaren began to form a new racing team originally known as the Bruce McLaren Motor Racing. And the team entered the history books by being the first group to construct a car around a carbon fiber monocoque. That's how Scott pronounces it. I would say monocoque because I think of it as French. But this is essentially a type of frame where the skin of the frame itself gives support to the overall structure. Okay. So it's as opposed to having like uh, struts or columns that keep the frame in place, the actual skin of the frame can do it. Now, uh, so that'll become more important a little bit later, but the racing team really focused on any kind of element that would give a vehicle more speed and control, given the limitations and requirements of whatever type of racing was involved. Uh, right. Formula One, as we have said, specifically has a lot of requirements yeah. you have to meet. And in fact, it's, it's a long-standing tradition in all forms of racing that engineers will look at the rules that racing uh, uh, the racing uh, uh, board has come up with 
and find ways to skirt around them. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of like Fey logic at yes. a certain point. Yeah. It's it's like, well, you said literally this thing, and so we will do literally this thing, but yeah. kind of the way we want to. Exactly. Yeah. The whole uh, yeah, exactly. The, either the Fey logic, or if you didn't lay out your wish exactly right with the <laughs> genie in the Dungeons and Dragons right. game. So uh, yeah, as it turns out, we'll we'll specifically call out one car where McLaren was able to uh, to you know take advantage of a little loophole. Now. If we want to look at the earliest vehicles that they were interested in, way back in 1965, McLaren and a guy named Robin Hurd collaborated to design a race car called the M1B, which would help McLaren take second place in the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, in 1967, McLaren Racing Limited produced a car called the M6A that won five of six major races. So, Even though it was a young company, because of the experience of the driver and the experience of the engineers involved, uh, they were really competitive really early on. And keep in mind, these Formula One racing cars are, like, crazy expensive. You know, we talk about a million for that sports car. That's nothing compared to a Formula One car. So the following year, that same car, the uh, M6A, would win four out of six races. And in 1969, it would win 11 races. And was uh, it was painted papaya orange. Uh, yeah, that would later become known as McLaren orange and was adopted as the official color yeah. of the company. Yeah. So if you ever see a, a an orange Formula One car pass you by, it's probably from McLaren. Uh, 1968, McLaren wins a major race driving a McLaren Ford vehicle called the M7A, which, you know, if you've ever seen like those designations of one car name and then another car name, it usually means one company was responsible for building the body of the car and another was responsible for the engine. Uh, in this case, it was a McLaren design on top of a Ford engine. Yes, the Cosworth DFV. Uh, the McLaren team begins to design a Grand Tourer vehicle with the eye to compete in Can-Am races. Now, that's uh, Canadian-American races that used to be held in uh, North America. They are They've been morphed into other types of races since then. Uh, that particular vehicle was called the McLaren M6 GT, GT for a Grand Tourer. And McLaren himself would tweak it so that he could have a road car based on its design because race cars are not, strictly speaking, street, street legal. legal. Yeah. yeah. So he wanted to have a street legal vehicle. Essentially, he wanted to have a race car he could drive on the road. So really, it was all about finding what he needed to tweak to, so that the car he loved to drive on the racetrack would be the one to make could, it to make it safe enough. Yes, yes. For not only himself but other passersby. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, this was um, this was an interesting little quirk of his personality. Unfortunately, in 1970, Bruce McLaren uh, died in a car accident while testing that new vehicle, that new yeah. uh, road car, and uh, obviously, huge tragedy. The McLaren group stuck together and continued to, uh, to, to build cars. Uh, Bruce McLaren was one of, but not the only race driver that they worked with. So they continued to work with other drivers. And in 1971, they built the M16. Uh, that was an Indy race car. Yeah. Uh, Indy being, uh, kind of similar to Formula One in that it's a open wheel single seater car, but, uh, but the Indy cars race, of course, around tracks. Yes. Yeah, so like those long oval tracks, like the Indianapolis 500 being right. the most famous race. So if you ever wonder what the big differences are between an Indy car and a Formula One car, and you see them, and they, they look kind of similar, 
just know that there are prob- there's probably a few hundred thousand dollars more worth of technology in a Formula One car than an Indy car. Uh, just because they have more to deal with. Yeah, they have to go on those surface streets. And so uh, I think of like the Formula One cars as, you know, like like Kit from Knight Rider. It's got this crazy amount of technology. Probably no machine guns or smoke, you know, bombs or anything like that. Well, probably because they're usually looking out for weight. So I guess unless, yeah. you know, someone really dastardly is right. on you got the track a, with you them. You've got some sort of snidely whiplash character <laughs> on there. But no, the indie cars don't need that. They They need, you know, they obviously need to worry about weight and speed and power and all that kind of stuff. But they don't have to have the same kind of levels of crazy technology that the Formula One cars do. Now, in 1981, we're skipping ahead a whole decade. Uh, John Bernard designs the MP4 slash one Formula One car. Now, this is the car that featured the carbon fiber design we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. So during a race on Italy's Monza racetrack, driver John Watson crashed his MP4 slash one while going 100 40 miles per hour. Oof. That's 225 kilometers per hour, in case you were wondering. So the car was destroyed, totally destroyed. But that carbon fiber frame stayed intact, and Watson walked away from the crash. Uh, Yeah, Bernard's design would go on to be the basis for car models all over the world due to this success in keeping... The driver alive. Exactly. Once people saw, wow, this thing was really effective and, and, and kept this, this driver safe, uh, everyone wanted to adopt it because it was carbon fiber and we did a whole episode on carbon fiber. Yep. So go back and listen to it if you don't remember, <laughs> but super lightweight and super strong. Now, in 1989, that's when McLaren Group would create a new company called McLaren Cars. Uh, and this would be their company to focus on purely street legal sporting cars. Yep. Uh, it'd be a while before they would introduce their first one. But, yeah, they, they started saying, well, we've got all this experience in developing uh, race cars. But, you know, race cars, they have a very limited use. <laughs> uh, yes. And we have to build a new one essentially every year because oh, yeah. everyone well, else is. And, I mean, really every two weeks. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're improving them at such a rapid pace that you're continually putting new stuff in there. And, and although you can get a lot of money from uh, sponsorships and, and advertisement and stuff like that, it's a little bit less of a pure business deal than perhaps just selling fancy cars to fancy people. Right. Also that year, they would create McLaren Electronic Systems, which was a branch of the company to develop and implement electronic fuel injection systems for their race cars, uh, which would also eventually start creating all kinds of sensors and transmitters and computer systems for monitoring and analyzing the minutia of their race cars inner workings, which would allow for their racing teams to do that continual tweaking and improvement, even in the middle of a racing season, you know, so that you can see what's going on in your car live minute by minute and and improve it once it gets back to the shop. And see, this kind of technology is the stuff that ends up spilling out into the consumer market eventually. Mm-hmm. So you get you, you know, you you have a very specific need in the racing world because you are you are performing at the peak right you're you're going up against other people who are just as uh as well equipped as you are and you need every advantage you can get so there's this drive to innovate technology well that technology fortunately has the added benefit of helping the rest of us out once it filters into the consumer market so that's another reason why this is an important company 
Well, in 1992, McLaren Automotive produces the McLaren F1 Supercar, which is the first road car for McLaren apart from the two prototype McLaren M6 GT vehicles that were produced back when Bruce McLaren was still alive. So this is the first time they actually had a road car that was available for uh, affluent people to purchase. <laughs> it was designed by Gordon Murray and Peter Stevens, and it would set the record for the world's fastest production car in 1998. It had a top speed, a top uh, advertised speed of 240 miles per hour, which is 390 kilometers per hour. Uh, I say advertised speed because there were people who got it faster than that. Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, OK, uh, the the interior of this car was a little bit strange. Yeah. The, the driver's seat was kind of in the middle uh-huh. and the two passenger seats were to either side, but set a bit back behind it. Yeah. So you're, you know, I think of it like, imagine you're driving an X-wing, but, <laughs> but you got two passengers sitting like to your left and right, just a little bit back. Uh, it, cause it does seem like, I, I mean, I'm, it's unusual for we Americans to look at cars that are driven around in England where the driver's side is on the right side as opposed sure. to the left. But putting it right in the middle, totally bizarro world. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure it had to do with weight specifications and balance or something. Yeah. I, I, I try not to question. It may have just <laughs> been the, the limited space inside mm-hmm. what used to be, again, like, like McLaren was known for taking these, these designs that were used in race cars where usually you had a single seat. It was just a single seated car. And then to adopt that and and change it into a road car meant that you had to have at least a two-seater. You could not do a single-seat car. Right. So uh, this might have been part of that about, you know, kind of shifting things around so it technically is a three-person car. <laughs> uh, it did feature an engine that was made by BMW. Yep. Um, and a specialized version of it, the F1 GTR, would win the Le Mans race, with, uh, Le Mans, which we talked about yeah, earlier, the, one of those marathon race, ones. Yeah. yeah. In 1994. There were only 64 of the F1 built and only nine of the GTR. Yeah. So when we say that they produced a sports car, we're talking about this. Is, these are hand built cars. Oh, yeah. yeah. This isn't like a Detroit uh, auto manufacturing line where you've got the huge line of vehicles no. where you've got <laughs> 10,000. You know, we're talking these are like boutique cars. That's part of the reason why they are what I would call prohibitively expensive. Because I certainly would be prohibited from affording one. <laughs> yes. In 1995, Mercedes would begin to build the engines for McLaren race vehicles, which that arrangement continues today. So we've seen a lot of uh, different engines so far, talking about Ford and BMW. But Mercedes has become the the exclusive uh, provider of engines. Actually, they they for a while, they were real buddy-buddy. We'll talk about that in a second. <laughs> and in 1998... McLaren engine is purchased by a new management team and renamed McLaren Performance Technologies, which would again be acquired by another company called Linamar in 2003. Its new role is to design, develop and test prototype operation for original equipment manufacturing. So this is OEM. You may have heard that term before, OEM. It's used in all sorts of industries, not just automotive industry. We're talking about everything. Essentially, what OEM companies do is they build the stuff that goes into other companies stuff. So if you ever hear of OEM for like a a smartphone, Mm -hmm. that might be a company that just makes the screen or maybe it just makes the battery. Oh, whichever components. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's what now McLaren engine does or McLaren performance technologies. 
Uh, it's also really confusing. If you look up McLaren and you start looking at all these different companies, some of them now no longer have really any connection to the original McLaren group. Um, but they, they do still bear the McLaren name. And at one point, they were part of right. McLaren group. So that gets a little confusing, too. Also, most of them have the word technology in the name somewhere. And yeah, it's little. Sort of like living in Atlanta and all the peach trees. Yes, but. a little bit. Uh, also, Adrian Newey and Neil Oatley designed the McLaren MP413 Formula One car. And driver uh, Mika Hakkinen would uh, win the Drivers World Championship in that car. And I'm sure I mispronounced his name. Uh, Scott uh, actually was working with uh, with. Uh, Chrysler at the time. Oh yeah, and uh, and we'll talk about how that has plays a part um, <laughs> because he actually heard all about this. He, oh, he was telling wow. me stories. It was fantastic. That's exciting. So, 1999, McLaren begins building the McLaren Technology Center, uh, formerly known as the Paragon Technology Center, and it's on a huge site. It's got a uh, 500,000 square meters, which is about 5.4 million square feet. Uh, yeah, this, this is out in uh, out in the UK countryside. Yeah, and uh, Sorry, it's, I believe. it's pretty. It's very pretty. It's we'll, pretty. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple years down yeah. our timeline. Um, but first, in the year 2000, Daimler Chrysler would purchase 40% of the McLaren Group. Yep, and uh, the other 60% of the company was owned by uh, a pair of owners who agreed to vote as a unit on any issue the company faced. But that got a little more complicated. Those two owners each sold half of their shares, so think of that as... Uh, they each sold 15% uh, to a, a holding company, which also agreed to vote in a block with the two owners. So all three of those owners would vote together. They still represent 60% of the overall ownership of the company. And then over time, all of the owners would buy shares back from Daimler until by 2013, there was a complete separation between McLaren and Mercedes, which is also owned by Daimler. By that time, by the way... Daimler and Chrysler would have split up. So what we're trying to say here is that <laughs> co- corporate relationships, especially in the automotive world, are complicated. They're sticky, y'all. Yeah, I, I would get to a point where I was trying to have this conversation again with Scott. He was just curious because once he heard that we were going to do this, he had lots of questions. <laughs> uh, and he and, and I said, you know, Daimler Chrysler. So, oh, you just mean Daimler now. Like, oh, yeah, I oh, guess I do. Yeah. <laughs> Write that in my notes. (laughs) So what does this all mean? Well, it means that McLaren would have to start paying for engines from Mercedes rather than having them provided because they were all part of the same big family. So that changed the bottom line for uh, McLaren Group as far as developing race cars. But otherwise, they've kept on with this relationship with Mercedes, still purchasing their engines from them. In 2004, McLaren Group creates McLaren Applied Technologies. And according to their website... They are built on decades of success in Formula One, and they're driven by a relentless desire to win. Applying our knowledge, expertise, and experience, we deliver real, measurable results across industries, from motorsport and automotive to energy and healthcare. At which point you might say, huh? (laughs) But yeah, when you think about it, again, with Formula One, it was all about we need to gather data. Yeah, it's it's sensory uh, sensory technologies yep. and uh, big data crunching. Exactly. You have to be able to get all the information and to analyze it and to say, all right, here's how we performed. Where are we lagging behind? How can we perform better? What What is within our control? And it just meant that, that the whole company got really, really good at this whole gather 
gathering of data and then the analysis of data and then making action points where you could actually, you know, turn that into something you could do about it. Tweak and change and, and improve. Right. So, yeah. So they decided, hey, you know what? We could probably use the same kind of approach in other industries. For lots of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Some of that lots of stuff includes things like data management, uh, vis- uh, virtualization uh, and simulation. And they've done some work in the energy sector, helping companies become more energy efficient, looking at how they operate and finding ways that they could do that better. And they've also worked with healthcare companies to find ways to examine patient data to create more personalized, customized care. For example, one of their first projects was helping to create a cardiac implant sensor that's been used in hospitals to monitor recovering in critically ill patients. Uh, they've also paired up with English rugby teams, among lots of other teams, to help them perfect their, their training and their in-game actions. Wow. Uh, and London's Heathrow Airport takes advice from them on more efficiently taxiing airplanes around the tarmac. <laughs> um, Hopefully not Formula One style. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I guess that's the idea. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, they, they do all of this from this finished headquarters that that ex paragon i think paragon was one of the yes. working titles yeah. of it um it that really does look by all reports like q should be at the helm of it mm-hmm. uh and 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 that is in fact yes called the mclaren technology center uh supposedly the entire glass encased building is kept within 1 degree of 22 degrees celsius which is about uh, 72 degrees fahrenheit and is completely odorless um <laughs> It's it's largely underground, um, and they generate enough energy on site to keep themselves going when the grid goes down. No wires are visible in any of the offices, and it only costs some uh, 300 million pounds or like, you know, 500 million dollars in today's exchange rate. Uh, so, so just a half billion yeah, for that building. So not no big. Yeah. Uh, if you ever want to get a look at what goes on there, just stick around because we're going to tell you about a uh, a particular show. That gives you a, a real insider's look at what yeah, goes on. Yeah, I'll, we'll also try to remember to uh, post out to social. Like, uh, I, I think Wired or maybe The Verge or maybe both uh, have have done photo essays out there. And yeah, it really it's, is it's pretty a phenomenal. Gorgeous event space. Yeah. yeah. So then in 2008, um, the engine control unit, which is the electronic car brain and, and coordinating software system that McLaren had been developing for years, became standard issue for all. Formula One teams and, and engine makers. Uh, this this gadget is not quite open source, uh, but individual teams are in fact allowed to fine tune the software for their own particular braking and torque systems. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, I, I find it extra fascinating that they continually have this technology that they develop for their own purposes that winds up getting passed out to everyone else because it's the best. Right. Um, like I said earlier, it's so good that based on the monitoring and analytics that they take, they're, they're so in-depth that about every two weeks, 5 to 10% of their racing cars are brand new based on tweaks that they make from, from everything from the aerodynamic surfaces to the suspension. And that's coming directly from the managing director of McLaren Electronic Systems, uh, whose name is Peter Van Manen. Wow. So uh, pretty legit source on yeah. that, I would say. <laughs> Five to ten percent of the racing cars brand new every two weeks. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of revision right there. Yeah. Uh, back now, moving forward to 2009, McLaren unveils the design for the McLaren 12C sports car, originally called the McLaren MP4-12C. So you know, the 12C is much more, I guess, 
spoken trippingly on the tongue. Oh, yeah. It's a two-door sports car with an acceleration of 0 to 62 miles per hour, or 100 kilometers an hour, in 3.1 seconds. That's <laughs> got some pep. All right. Uh, advertised top speed is 207 miles per hour, or 333 kilometers per hour. Again, people have driven it faster than that. Because, <laughs> uh, you know. If you really got to get somewhere. Uh, in 2010, the McLaren group uh, or the McLaren team introduced the McLaren MP4-25, which has a few interesting features, including a vent that the driver could cover up just by moving his left leg. Uh, this is one of those fey logic rules yeah. kind, of, kind of things right here. Yeah. So the, lo- the rule that Lauren is referring to is a rule that says that the cars are not allowed to have any kind of moving aerodynamic device. Like you couldn't have a flap that moves uh, on your Formula One racing car. It's against the rules. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing against the rules stating that you couldn't design something in your car where if the driver were to move. So, for example, uh, let's say that you're gone on, going on a really long straightaway on one of these Formula One uh, uh, routes. Remember, this is on public roads where the Formula One driver can just casually move the left leg to cover up the vent, thus changing the airflow direction and giving you more stability on those long runs so you can really build up speed. And then when you start turning, you can move your leg away when you don't need it as much because you're moving at a slower speed. There's nothing against the rules about that. If it's just the driver who's moving, not the car, then it's fine. Yeah. So this is one of those loopholes <laughs> that. that engineers uh, were able to exploit. Yeah, really cool little story. I uh, as I read about this, I could just imagine engineers just getting really devious. I, I like to imagine that they're spending the evening like just chatting in a pub, sipping some Guinness, and then someone's like, hey, you know what? You know what we could do, guys? <laughs> just get goblin face on, right. just go like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2011, McLaren builds the McLaren Production Center opposite the Technology Center. Uh, this builds the road cars for McLaren as opposed to the racing cars. Uh, and keep in mind also, this whole road car thing still a handmade process. If you've ever heard about the luxury cars that come out of England, like Bentleys, these are things that are literally built by hand. And if uh, if two parts are not quite working together, they will go back and by hand and file one them. down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is incredibly precise. And it's also why they're usually such low production runs because mm-hmm. you can't build that many that way. <laughs> um, 2012, this is where we get into one of the more bizarre parts of our story. McLaren Animation Media Company partners with Framestore to produce a cartoon series called Tuned, which features uh, Tuned as T-O-O-N-E-D. Uh, but, but, but a pun. Yes, on obviously. Tuned. On tuning a vehicle. Tuning, right. Mm-hmm. Which it features two of their F1 drivers, uh, Jensen Button and Lewis Hamilton. And also a comedian named Alexander Armstrong, who's playing a character known as Professor M. And the purpose of the show is to leverage the McLaren brand and get more support for the company, as well as create new merchandising opportunities. Here's here's kind of like a typical episode has the two characters, uh, Jensen and Lewis, sort of competing against each other. They have uh-huh. this this camaraderie. It's kind of a kind of a one upping sort okay. of relationship. Uh-huh. And uh, meanwhile, Professor M is b- basically telling them not to. Not to blow not, everything up. Not to blow everything up. Yeah, it's essentially Q. Like, come on, 007 <laughs> is essentially the role. Uh, by the way, if you want to watch any of these, they are up online. You can watch, I think, all of season one and season two and maybe some of season three. Um, and it's fairly entertaining stuff. They tend to be pretty short, like three or four minutes per episode. Uh, so you can 
blast through a couple of them easy. So check that out if you haven't already, just to kind of, and this is where you can really get a look at the fictional world of the <laughs> technology center, which makes it look like it's part James Bond, part Transformers. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, maybe other than the Transformers, I'm not sure how far off that really is. That yeah. Yeah, I don't Possibly know. more true to life. If than McLaren we know. would like to invite us to come and check out yeah, the technology anyone center, anyone listening who works for McLaren, let us know. Yeah, we will, we will happily take you up on that. Uh, they also, in 2012, unveiled the McLaren P1 car, which is a plug-in hybrid sports car. So, this is a partially electric vehicle. It has an electric motor. It also has an engine, mm-hmm. and um, calling it a hybrid sports vehicle is probably being a little, you know, um, modest. modest? Yeah. yeah. Also, if you want to buy one, I hope you have $1.35 million set aside because that's about how much it costs. Um, by the way, that's how much the base vehicle costs. From what I understand, most people end up who actually purchase one of these end up putting in so many options that the average price is closer to $1.6 to $1.8 million. Oof. I don't yeah. even understand that amount of money. Yeah. That's, that's awesome, though. That's, that's more than I, I figure I'll ever see. <laughs> ever see ever. in your life? Yeah. yeah. Uh, around the same time in, in 2012, I, I suppose leading up to 2012, uh, McLaren began to incorporate lots of the monitoring tech used by their racing teams in partnerships with the British Olympic teams. Uh, like in rowing, they mm-hmm. have uh, wireless sensors to measure what's up with the paddles and the boats and the athletes in real time during courses. Uh, the same thing for cycling. Yeah. This is where Jonathan would normally go off on a tangent about how uh, the the advantages some athletes might have with their equipment is perhaps giving them an unfair edge oh, no. <laughs> and beyond just their athletic ability. Oh, but that's that's I mean, I think that Olympic sports at this point are just as finicky as Formula One sure. racing because yeah. you know people are trying to inch that 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 just extra millisecond yeah. you of you gotta time. get that that hundredth of a second advantage right. to to break that oh yeah yeah that, people uh, the athletes are so good these days that it really does come down to perfecting your technique I just want to see them all in the same rowboat same style rowboat <laughs> so everyone's on a level playing field that's what I want to see. That's a different podcast that doesn't even involve tech stuff. Uh, uh, in 2013, McLaren tested their P1 on the Nürburgring, which is a kind of performance car yardstick track in Germany. It spans like 13 miles, a.k.a. 20 kilometers, has 154 turns in it, and is used in the industry for kind of privately timed bragging rights. Uh, they, they claim, McLaren claims, that the P1 did a lap in under seven minutes. Wow. Uh, 13 miles in under seven minutes, uh, which would officially put it in league with the Porsche 918 Spider, which is one of the P1's direct competitors. It's another hybrid sports yeah. vehicle, vehicle that uh, among costs more the than a house. Million dollar yeah, range. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, 2014 McLaren partners with Specialized, which is a bicycle brand, and unveils the S Works McLaren Tarmac Bicycle. Which wasn't the first bicycle that McLaren worked on. Uh, Mark Cavendish rode on an S-Works uh, McLaren Venge bicycle to win the Tour de France uh, and the UCI Road World Championship. It's a limited run. Uh, only 250 of these uh, tarmac bicycles are being made. And McLaren uses sensors on bicyclists to study exactly how the athlete and the bicycle work together. They use that as a guide, that information uh, while designing the new bicycle and they've built virtual models and run them in simulation and then they would go back and tweak the design of the bike and see if that would improve the performance. 
they said that they were actually the first people to really consider a bicyclist and a bicycle as a as a performance a, unit. A, yes, an actual unit as opposed to two separate things. And so I said when you when you sign a car, you don't have to factor in the driver's weight or mass because it's it's negligible compared oh, right. to the weight of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. With a bicycle, it's totally the opposite because the uh, the athlete's mass is likely going to be greater than that of the bike. Oh yeah, it's certainly in the case of this bike. So uh, that, that they were really it was really interesting that they took the same sort of philosophy of designing a car toward how do we make this bike the best bike in the world? I totally want one of these, by the way, but oh, I well, doubt I own. <laughs> how much would it cost? Uh, I mean, they're they're priced at about twenty thousand dollars each. Um, uh, they they are custom fit and painted for each buyer. Oh, good! I could get that McLaren orange on there. Then. Yeah, yeah, and well, <laughs> they they also will uh, include in the package a bunch of the sporting gear that you would need to use. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I mean, it's it's gorgeous stuff, uh, and and so high tech. Just the materials, the design incorporates a lot of carbon fiber to reduce weight. And uh, these specialized ceramic-coated ball bearings to reduce friction <laughs> in the hubs and the crankset. Yeah, it really is cool to see exactly how uh, granular they've they've gotten with the design. They're looking at the tiniest of elements that could uh, impact performance. Uh, meanwhile, on the racing side, McLaren has developed network systems to transmit data about their cars back to their teams during races. They they set up antenna around any given track or course, and the team can use the data received to model how the engine is performing, how the tires are performing, uh, the, the fuel efficiency of the car in real time and use that to provide instructions to their crews and also, of course, save all of that stuff for further processing and improvements later on. This is it just blows my mind. Like <laughs> it, it, When I read about this, the more I read about it, the more I think like, wow, this sounds like it would not be out of place in a discussion about NASA. Right? I mean, that's that's how how exacting we're getting here. This year, McLaren also announced the McLaren 650S, a new sports car based on the McLaren 12C car, but it has some new parts to it. So it's depending upon whom you ask, some people call it a brand new car and some people say it's a, a modified uh 12C. I guess it all depends upon your point of view. Uh, in the community, meanwhile, they uh, recently signed up to be part of the UK's Your Life program, which is this uh, STEM um, science, technology, engineering, and I always forget the M. Math. Math. Thank you. Uh, uh, educational and or economic initiative that's meant to get kids interested in jobs in scientific fields. Uh, which is pretty awesome. It is. Um, I mean, also, especially for them, their engineers have to come from somewhere. That's true. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they have a they have a vested interest in promoting STEM. They certainly do. And rumor has it from McLaren Applied Technologies Vice President Jeff McGrath, nonetheless, uh, who said in a, a May 2014 interview with Verge that they will be teaming up with, and I quote, one of the best known consumer electronics companies in the world on wearable tech that will be made available to the public starting in 2015. I watch anyone. I hmm. I just wild guess that's going to be Apple. I mean, I mean, it might not. It, yeah, like like it could be for a brand that will not have anything to do with McLaren. Like McLaren might not be the name sure. on this product. But yeah, I, I mean, see, it, it makes sense because the more I looked into this company, particularly the style that they have. Oh, yeah. Uh, they have such gorgeous design. It, it really reminded me a lot of Apple. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the McLaren headquarters and then you look at the Apple headquarters, 
then you you can see that there's a lot of the the design philosophies that overlap. Oh yeah, they they would be very much at home hanging out together. I think. Yeah. So. Where you might say that an iPhone just looks like it moves fast, and a McLaren car just looks like it would produce beautiful music, particularly <laughs> if that music is vroom vroom. <laughs> I will also try to remember to share um, that there was a video uh, on that um, Nurburgring. Mm-hmm. track of of that p1 going around it and it is it is some sound yeah it is wow. some gorgeous sound uh well we will definitely try and share as much of this as we can it was fun to look at a company that uh, that really covered something that as much as i joked in the beginning i really didn't know that much about i actually had to do a lot of research oh yeah just to kind of make sure i was talk i knew what i was talking about and it gave me a new appreciation for our buddies over at Car Stuff. Oh, my so, goodness, right? <laughs> I, yeah, again, if you have not checked out their show, you you definitely need to do that yeah. because it's a great, great podcast. Uh, and also, I mean, they really do talk a lot about technologies during the course of their show. Yeah. So yeah. It's, especially if you enjoyed, say, our... Uh, transmission episode a yep. while back or anything like that mm-hmm. they go they go deep into that kind of stuff all the time exactly yeah and again if you ever have a question about anything related to cars scott benjamin is your man trust me yeah even if you do not sit next to him in an office please. yeah yeah <laughs> so guys if you have any other suggestions for future episodes of tech stuff whether it is a company a personality just a particular kind of technology you've always wanted to know how it worked let us know. Send us a message. Our email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle is techstuffhsw. And again, if you want to check out Car Stuff, go to carstuffshow.com. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 